excited to be here today, yet again, as we work through the fruit of the Spirit. But I want to do something really quick before we start. There is a appreciation in order. As I was praying this morning, and listening to my wife over the last few weeks, it is not Mother's Day, but I don't need to be Mother's Day, we have all the moms to stand up real quick. Specifically, the moms who have, like, little kids in here. I mean, all moms can stand up, but the, the moms with the little ones, you stand up and kick your chin up, you know what I mean? Let me hear what you got here. Okay, why am I having you stand? They, they don't even want to stand. Come on, mom, stand up. Wife, wife, wife. I was leading a, a couple through a, a prenatal counseling service over the last couple months, and we were talking a lot about how love endures. It finds a way. And in the new era and world that we live in, full of masks and no children's ministry and nowhere to find daycare and no place to sleep and you're constantly seeming to be with your kids in a more quarantine or confined space than ever has before, love has still found a way, and you have found your way here, and I want to say thank you for that. Because there's a generation of young people that could be missing out on the truth and the hope of the gospel if it weren't for a mother and a dad who said, put your mask on, we're going anywhere. Just saying. And so for that, I just want to say, uh, thank you, thank you, thank you. It's nothing to do with what we're going to talk about. I just, I had to start there. Today's sermon is called, the Word of the Spirit, there it is, The Beauty of the Fruit, A Study of the Spiritual Fruit of Meekness. Before we open God's Word, why don't we pray together for our time. Lord, I thank you for this time today. I thank you for your Son and His work and display on the cross of grace and mercy, His, his miraculous resurrection into power and ultimate authority. Lord, and yet again today, we submit ourselves to that truth, to that gospel. I ask, Lord, that I may decrease to the point where you shine so bright there's nothing to speak of today's service, but your glory. I pray that your word is displayed. I pray that the truth is provided accurately and clearly. Lord, I pray that ears are open to hear, that there is both expression of your truth, but your creativity, and your artistry, and your mastery over all of us today. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus, and everybody said, Amen, Amen, Amen. Okay, so we're moving right along in our sermon series of the fruit of the Spirit. Now, we're kind of getting to the end here. We're landing the proverbial plane, if you will. And I think it's important at times to to just step back and go to the foundation of what we've been talking about all along. When you divide the Scripture up this way, you can trick yourself into thinking that you've left the church service with a password for the week. Instead of behaviors that you're, um, or habits that you're setting out to accomplish for the week. Paul is not saying that to Galatia, and he's not saying that to us now. The fruit of the Spirit is produced by the Spirit, not us. Let's go ahead and jump back to Galatians 5. We'll start in verse 16. It's up on the screen if you need it, just so that we can review really where we're coming from as our launch pad for this morning 
servant. Paul says in chapter 5 and verse 16, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of your flesh. For the desires of your flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. Keep you from doing the things you want to do. Verse 18. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are under the law. 19. Now, the works of the flesh are evident: sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, envy, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Okay, there it is. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us keep the underlinable verse in step with the Spirit. Let us not be some conceited, provoking one another or envying one another. If you haven't been hearing these past weeks about the list of things God would want you to do, you've been listening, you've been hearing the past few weeks about what happens if you walk in step with the Spirit. Paul reminds us in 16 and in 25 that if we want to live by the Spirit or produce the fruit that the Spirit produces, we must walk and keep in step with it. Here's the question. How is this done? How does one walk by the Spirit? What is the mechanism of faith that's required for us to begin to live a life walking in step with the Spirit? We understand what produce if we do, but how do we get this to be produced? This is my aim today, to bring some light to that question. How do we walk by the Spirit? And I'm going to do it in three ways. You might want to write these down. First, I want to talk a little bit about who we are that conditions. Second, I want to talk about who we are. That's our identity. And finally, I want to talk about what we are here for our purpose. I'm going to unpack these ideas and, and, and spiritual characteristics by using one as an example of all. I'll say that again. I'm going to unpack these ideas by using one as an example of all. In other words, I'm going to talk about meekness today as an example for all of the fruit of the Spirit. And I believe it. But if you can understand who we are, whose we are, and what we're here for, we are more capable to walk by the Spirit day by day and produce the proper truth. The challenge for us is to grow spiritually before we grow physically. So today's sermon, you're not going to get a lot of like practical to-do list stuff. Because did you know that we are actually spiritual beings who have to work and operate and live in a physical world. We're not physical beings who just like had a car accident with the physical world or the spiritual world. So often we think about ourselves the other way around. My name is Beth. I'm a big 300 pound, I hate saying that, but it's the truth. 
200-pound gorilla man. And I'm trying to work out how to be a Christian, how to, how to use my spirit long. The eternal side of me is exercising and learning from the Word and from the Spirit how to operate in this physical world. And so we're going to preach today to the Spirit and hope that fruit is produced in our life. I ask you to do things to help you mature. Does that make sense? Did you say something to me? Okay. Let's talk about who we are first as our condition. I call this the principle of the second. Who we are kind of seems to be in our lives as a fluid concept. Or one way when we're in high school, or a different way when we're in college, or a different way when we have kids, or a lot different when we have kids. Who we are tends to change. But when we encounter the gospel of Jesus Christ and by faith transfer our trust him, there is a part of us that's established by His work, not our own, that is unchanging. It's eternal, forever and ever and ever. And I call this the principle of the second. The Bible is a story about one thing in Genesis Revelation. It's a story about a man born in Bethlehem who lived not as a seed of Adam and lived a perfect life, was unjustly murdered miraculously resurrected and then handed over essentially what he was earned what he had earned himself to all of us. His name is Jesus Christ. Now, that's the new understanding of Matthew, Mark, and John, but I'm here to tell you that the same story is told from Genesis to Revelation in a series of patterns and themes. Things like the kingdom. It's a story about Jesus. Things like the seed. It's a story about Jesus. Here's another thing. The theme of the second is a story about Jesus. But because of our relationship with Jesus that you have been, it's a story about you. Let me show you the pattern of the second. You ready for this? Let's go back all the way to the beginning. Cain. First, there was Cain. But then the second son was Abel. Both brought an offering to the Lord, and the Lord accepted the second. This is the part where the kids get to help me out. All the kids in the room, I need you to stand up real quick. Kids, stand up. Okay. We're going to make some changes in our life. You ready to make a change in your life? Okay, when I make a change in my life, I take a stand this time. And this is my stand stand. Here's why I say You got a good stand stand? Yeah. Special fact. Stand stand. Yeah, we're going to take a stand. And when I want to take a stand, I can't just think it in my mind. I've got to say it out loud. So when I take a stand, I say something, and then I go live it out. Here's what you're going to say today, right? Here's the thing. You're going to say it like this. Step. Step. Take a stand. Okay, ready? One, two, three. You killed Goliath last week, bud. You've got to be able to, like, bring some mustard to this. Second is best. Good. We're going to do that a few times today, and I think we're going to see some changes. Go ahead and sit down. So the kids said second is best. Second is best with Abel. Then we go on and we see the life of Abraham. He had one son, Ishmael, the first. But he received the blessing. He was the true son who would become a nation. Isaac. Then we had 
Jacob and Esau. Esau was bloody, hairy, red-headed, strong, hunter man. Jacob has the worst explanation of what it means to be a man in all of Scripture, in all of eternity. He was a man who dwelt in tents. Horrible. But who receives the blessing? Jacob. Then we have Saul, who was a king who stood a head above the rest. He was rejected by the Lord, and a young shepherd boy named David rises to the king of Israel. When we see Adam, way back at the beginning, Adam means of earth, or earth. The first son was of the earth, and he could not satisfy. He fell into his nature, his earthdom. But the second Adam, Jesus Christ, is a way where there previously was no way. Now, what does this have to do with tonight? How is this the principle about who we are? Watch this. We were born into our flesh. Our spirit is dead. It's not like you have an opportunity to do something good, kind of, sort of, if you're not a Christian. You have no hope, no chance, nothing is worthy in your flesh. The first Jew is rejected. And yet the grace and the favor of the Lord comes to those that we call. And what happens? We call it reborn. Born again. The second one. Here comes the Spirit of God who is exchanged with yours. Not your new clean spirit that you get to mess up all over again. The impenetrable, perfectly clean Spirit of God dwells in your mortal body. You can produce the fruit of the Spirit because you have the Spirit of God. That's a pattern about who we are. You see, in my family, we like to be the first. I want to look the most. I want to be the first out of the red light. I want to be the first in the church. I, want, uh, I like that part of it. And in our flesh, in our upbringing, in our Western culture, from time to time, there's a thing we're going to start to talk about today, where our, our upbringing and culture starts to get a, a more of a vote than the spirit we just talked about in that thing. Who we are is more a son and daughter of the Most High King if you are in faith than it is you are in America. Because it's the eternal spirit. Flesh like and bones being God. Does that make sense? Now, I could go on, but I can't. If there's anybody in here who can say to themselves, you know what? I don't know if I have the spirit of God. I don't know if that second me has come along. Let me tell you something. Coming to church, going to Bible study, having a Bible, listening to podcasts, and knowing a few Hillsong songs does not give you the Spirit of God. Today can be the day of salvation. Hear me now. Because if you've heard it a thousand times, today can be the day of salvation for a person who's maybe been living in a Christian culture that does not have a Christian Christ life. Let me tell you, church, he paid a whole lot to offer the Spirit to us. It was expensive. You know, if you feel like you've got the second hand of this and this Christian experience, I'd like you to consider this morning maybe a saving faith instead of a faith-like culture. That's something to continue here. Okay. So, now, now that we understand who we are, right? We have the Spirit of God in us. That's who we are. I want to talk about whose we are. This is where we jump into today's need of the message. We're going to talk about weakness. 
blasphemous in your scripture are essentially interchangeable words. They mean the same thing. I just want to talk about mismatch today because I think it's a little more derived. It's farther away from our typical language today. You think of gentleness, and you think of a lot of things. Meekness, and many of you are like, I don't really know what this is. So that's going to help us mold our minds to it. When we talk about meekness, we talk about gentleness. When the old man, the flesh, dies away, we receive the spirit, we begin to produce different things than we did before. Maybe raise your hand if you've had that experience. You got saved, you know you were saved, and then just different stuff started happening. Not because you felt like you were going to make a mistake, it just started to change. When we produce the fruit of the Spirit instead of the fruit of our flesh, one of the characteristics displayed in our lives is meekness. And this word is closely related to like humility or gentleness. If I was to try to just throw more adjectives at you to help shape the word, those are the ones that I would use. We use it's used various times in the Bible, but I think it's useless to quote. Okay, now kids, this is your part of this. So you're taking your first stand. Second is that. Now you're going to take your second stand. You have your stand position. This is a bad position, but this is kind of how I do it. Good. This is what you're going to say, and I need you to say it loud and proud. In the church, nobody lets you scream but me. Remember that. Ready? This is what you're going to say. Here we go. One, two, three, go. If I had a kid sit down in the middle of his table. We're going to have a sermon series on boldness in the youth ministry here to come. Good job, guys. Okay, now, meekness needs to be defined before we can go on. Many of you can understand it like this. Meekness is power under control. And here's a picture I want to use today. Typically, in Greek language, there's a lot of very pictorial language that helps me understand what's coming from an original language. Here's a picture I got from the commentator that I just love. It's a picture of a wild horse, powerful and majestic, who encounters a trainer. And the trainer breaks that horse. He doesn't break him with violence or breaking their spirit. He breaks them with gentleness, leading them in the proper way. To a point where eventually this horse, can, or the trainer, can put what's called a bit in the back of the horse's mouth. And he uses reins in the saddle and he mounts that horse. That is power under control. Let me ask you a question. How much power does a horse need when he becomes a trained horse? None. None power. He's the same majestic, powerful, fast, aggressive animal, but now it is placed under submission in an aspect of control. The spirit or the fruit of the spirit in regards to meekness that the spirit produces in the world is power under control. Eventually when that horse is broken, such a degree, the horse and the trainer, the horse and the rider, kind of become so communicative, so compatible, so intimate, they're like one thing moving rather than two. There's a rhythm to good riding, a really good rhythm horse. 
that comes with your hips and legs. There's a feeling. It's not just hugging and pulling. There's a, a, a sense to this. A, maybe you could say it like this. A relationship. Did you know that's the same thing, right? Here we are, these wild mustangs, thinking we're free, thinking we have choices. I'm a red-blooded American, and by golly, I'm going to make my own fortune and then introduce And he doesn't break your legs. He doesn't crush your spirit. Often he finds you in a low place. But he treats you kindly. He teaches you. He draws you unto himself. And then he takes power and he puts it under control. See, now we have the opportunity to do something that's actually worthwhile. Before we were saved, we thought we were doing stuff worthwhile. I don't care what it was, but it wasn't. Because it wasn't guided by the Lord. You see this in Matthew 5. Matthew 5 is the picture that we would call the Sermon on the Mount. And it's a portion of the Sermon called the Beatitudes. Jesus is standing on a gold, kind of looking down at that little mountain, and then he's on the side of the mountain. You can uh, see behind him, and broken in the room, those who've been oppressed by the religious leaders of the time, those who are sick and outcasted from their community, those who have potential but don't see it in themselves are standing before him, and he says in verse 5, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the world. It's not like if you're meek, then you get a bunch of stuff. That's like harsh pictures, but not, not entirely. He's saying, if you are meek in spirit, the world is going to reject you. But if you're humbled enough to be taught, to be led, I will take you somewhere where you could not go before. There ain't no way to heaven without the ladder. You know what I mean? He's going to take us a place to a place where we've never been before. We will inherit the whole earth. Nothing is impossible with God. I want to show you this way. Sorry, I'm clicking the computer. I'm not the screen. This is what I was looking for. Matthew 11, a little bit later, Jesus is struggling with the Pharisees and he's beginning to turn his attention away from trying to to help the Jewish people understand that they've they misunderstood the law. And he's turning to the Gentile Jews. He's beginning to kind of move it to the more meek, to the lost, even by the Jewish standards. And it says this, Come to me, he says this, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And there that word is again, for I am Good trainer trains a horse by, by training the horse the way he wants to go behave. The Lord raises us, trains us, helps us, guides us in the manner he wants us to behave. The Lord is me, and he's asking the same of us. How could weakness ever be weakness if the Lord is me? Does that make sense this morning? Philippians uh, 2. Uh, 2, 7, and 8. I'm sorry. Listen to this. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of man, being found in appearance as a man. He was humbled. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even on a cross. You might say, well, Beth, I want to be meek, but I've got I to 
I've got to do my own thing. I, I, I have to raise my own family. I have to work my own job. It's easy for God to ask me to be submissive because He's the one on top. The God of the universe came to the dust of the earth. There is no lower than that. And He did it as an example. Not to show Himself up. He doesn't need us to know the gospel. He did it on our behalf. And as a result, we can make this conclusion. If Jesus is rich, He has changed us to be rich. This is who we are, right? He's the rider, and we are the horse. And we are under His ownership, His ability to walk by the, walk by the power of the Spirit. If the example kind of breaks down, and it's not just Him up here and us down below, and a bit more than that. He didn't give you an invitation to be near Him. He gave you an invitation to His very life. It says that when Jesus was on the cross, He breathed and He gave up His spirit. He was killed. Jesus gave His spirit away. He saved us to His life. He's invited you into far more than the character of Christ. When we accept that into our life, not just who we are, but that we are His, we have to make some satisfied um, arguments about ourselves that we are now different. We're not brainwashed. He's not some puppet master. But we are different. And the way we are different is that we can do things we were never able to do before. You have an ability to speak humbleness when you never had the capability before. You know that you can resist anger now? Listen, you may be dealing with a sin issue in your life that you can't get your mind around. I'm telling you, the Lord and His Spirit will make you capable to avoid a sin. He gives you away where the previous one was, no way. You have an ability to actually resist in the end by realizing who you are and that you are purchased with a cross. Okay, let's go to the third one. So we know who we are, we know who we are, and I want to talk about the purpose of our solution. I call this the great escape. Kids, this is your turn again. You're making claims today. Assume the position. I thought an adult would say you're like trying to get into this, but sort of a bummer. Oh. And he follows. Yeah. Okay, you're going to make a stand now. You're going to make a claim and you're going to change this in your life. Ready? Here's what you're going to say. It's golden. I'll never try to escape the mind. I'll never try to escape from mine. One, two, three, go. That's good. This is the third item in how we would deal with missions. This is the example of missions. I thought about old pastors or maybe some martyrs that would be a great example of missions. Let's just go to the top of the mountain. Jesus himself. His display of missions. Shows us our purpose in the earth. Which is remember Jesus in the garden? Jesus in the garden and he's praying. He knows that his time is at hand. He's understanding that this is this is really coming near to him. And he's praying in the garden with his disciples. He's all alone. He's separated from them and makes the fall asleep. And he's going through this, this kind of dark night of the soul, this war in the spirit, and he's resolute that he cannot let this cup pass. 
he has to remain a meek point in the Bible we're taking where we need to go. And then here comes the, uh, Judas. As it was described in Matthew, Jesus comes with a large crowd with swords and clubs who came from the chief priests and the elders of the people. And Jesus says, do what you come for. It's nighttime. So far away from the city, it's quiet. And he sees this group, this gang, come towards him. And this is a moment, if you've ever read the scripture, in such a way, I had the opportunity to read it. I wasn't raised really as a Christian. I'm reading this text for the first time. And it's like a cool book, because I don't know what's going to happen next. There's Jesus, and then there's the Pharisaical leaders, and, and, and these, these men with clubs and swords, and they're coming to arrest Jesus for a crime he did not commit. And there I am, laying on the floor, like, no! And then, like, the part of the of the story, where I think it's all going to hinge. Anybody remember what happened? Peter draws his sword, and he gets to swing, cuts off a little fillet of ear, you know? And I'm thinking, yes, that's right. The Bible says you should turn the other cheek. Well, I only have four cheeks, you know? Like, I can't, I only have so much in me before I start to push back. And I'm a, I'm a big, kind of aggressive guy. It's just in my nature. I want to fight. Enough is enough. Draw a line in the sand. Yada, yada, yada. My nature is that way. The other day, Chad, uh, Chad was upstairs, and I was in Daniel's office, and we were talking, and Chad thought it would be funny to, like, jump out into the hall and scare me up. So he jumps into the hall and screams real loud. And look, I'm not like a Colt Collins raised boy. If something comes, I don't run away from it. I'm coming at you. And so a big fella gets up and starts running down the hall. It's like, yeah, it wasn't good, and I knew you were going to pay for that. Now, unfortunately, he's like the fastest human in Fort Collins, so I couldn't quite, quite catch him. <laughs> I have an aggressive nature naturally, and when uh, opposition comes, I want to quickly respond by pulling a sword and saying, enough is enough. I was so excited because I thought, this is like the greatest escape. Crafty, gifted man who plows their way out from the clutches of the enemy. That's not how the works. The trajectory changes on the movement of our level. Just for his father, took it to you, and it heals the man. And he says this, and that's 2652. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my Father and He will at once dispose more than twelve legions of angels? But now then, it is just as we fulfilled that say it must happen in this way. We want to talk about power. Jesus could bring legions of angels to solve his problem. He is a powerful force that can buck when he wants to. But the wider point, you've got to go to your own direction. And it's big in his mouth. King of the world has to big in his mouth. To read, he tells us to read it. Not worry about the greatest state. Don't revel in that. But instead, read the greatest
Don't you trust me? But we do. Have we seen the same trajectory shift in the story? Sure, we've been saved. If you have been saved, you've bent your knee, you've handed your trust over to the Lord. Maybe you've even received the Spirit and you like missional activity and you know that you're His and, and that you want to do good things. But do you still have a dependence on yourself? Does the fleshly part of you get a bigger vote in what you do in the Spirit part? There are times in your life when you think, man, i got to get out of this. I have to have another great escape. I'm going to lean on my potential, lean on my own intelligence, lean on my own understanding. These are the instincts of history. This is how to change the world. By the least example, where we say, we Lord, lead. And I'm sorry. A Western culture... American upbringing taught us to be all that we can be. And trust me, I don't have any problem. I love my country. I love my flag. I love my boots that I pull up all by myself. But as a Christian man, as a dad, as a leader in the community, as a mom, as a, as a, as a leader maybe in athletics or in your school, that has to take a back because let me tell you something. Someday, there won't be any more Second Amendment or Declaration or our own muscular strength, or our own country to rely on. You know why? We'll be standing in front of God himself. And it's at that moment we don't have our own abilities to rely on because at the mercy of the throne of the Lord, we will see how good he is and how much good we can do. I don't know what God has planned for you specifically. I don't. I'm not saying I understand anybody's call. But I know that God has asked each and every one of us to be sanctified in such a way that we move from the ideas in our mind of the greatest state and guide ourselves to the greatest example. Be perfect and live 100% more. But it's going to be an example of the glory of God. Sin is the right And us is the one with the glory. is to glorify the God of the universe in the way that He wishes. Just like our talents are past you. I feel like I'm a pastor. Really, I've I, I got to confess this to you. I'm like a preacher. It feels like what God made me for. So I'm responsible for it. You know what I wish I was right now? I speak such a humbling experience, such a, such a sanctifying time in my life, because the Lord in my humility or in my attempt to be humble and to let Him lead has just to take it away from my understanding of Him. Verse 16, we'll have a good backstory. This is so pointless. You can't take your muscles into heaven. I want to be bigger things. I hope that I maybe I've 
stirred up the spirit for the kingdom, whatever it is, and the gospel in your day to day life. Understand that we're not looking to heaven someday, but there is work to be done now. The Lord is our great guide now. How do we do this? How do we walk by the spirit? We know who we are, we know whose we are, we know our purpose. But in the day to day life, the application is yielding this power. that I teach him about his country and lives in an apartment and says, my apartment is over to the entire country, so you can stop with that. I mean, that's what's crazy. Doing what he was going to the man and he was talking about this idea and he would say to me, I would say when I, when I get into a decision-making room, a tight spot, or anger's involved, I tend to want to do the go to state. That's a great example. I need my sweat. That's what I'm trying to say. And he says, well, what? When you have that thought, Using power as it relates to the principles of the second in our lives as we go day by day trying to walk in step with the Spirit, who we are, who we are, and our purpose. Be careful about your instant reaction. When you have a worldly thought, don't be trapped in it. Have another thought. As they would say, I just want to call him a leprechaun, but I think you might listen to the message and still, I'm sorry, is the says this in Romans 6 in regard to yielding. Do not go on offering members of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but offer yourselves to God in a decisive act as those alive, raised from the dead to new life, and your members, all of your abilities, all of your giftedness, all of your talents, should be sanctified and set apart as instruments of righteousness that are yielded to God. Beloved, we are fools. We're not puppets given control by the Lord, but give yourself to the Lord for His use. Hand ourselves over day by day for His good pleasure. If you're going to work hard at something, work hard at yielding, because that's where the real power lies. Last thing. Uh, for like 10 or 12 years or so, I was a pastor in another church in town. And it's a smart thing, it's not just for those in the past, but for anybody, to have an older person that you can kind of meet with and process with and do Bible study with. My guy's name was Jerry Arnold. He was like 208. Okay? He was like the oldest guy in Fort Collins. And he mumbled and he grumbled and he wore sandals and he socks, and I loved him. And we would go to Cuppy's Coffee. And we'd sit down and we were talking about yielding like every week. I was so sick of it. I wanted to bang my head on the table because he would talk to me about me trying to, like, rustle my way to Christianity and him talking about dying to yourself and letting the Lord do it for you. You know, I got sick two weeks ago. I got an injury in the summer in Arizona right now. And uh, I couldn't come back home for the summer. And I'm sorry, he was limping in Arizona. He got hurt and now he couldn't come back. He sent me a message as we were corresponding back and forth. Philippians 2, 13 through 15, it says this. For it is God who works with you, and in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure, do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. 
brother, this is my wish for you, that you would let go and let God do the wonderful, eternal thing he wishes to do with you. Yesterday, at 7 a.m., I found out that this very suddenly passed. You know, we've been hanging out at that coffee shop for years. All I wanted to say to him was, Jerry, come up with new material. Let's talk about something else. And in his passion, I can think of nothing else. And he tried to emulate the fruit of the Spirit to produce it in any way. We are standing our sword against the wall. If it would not get healed, and if the Spirit of God would do it in us. So just like all of us, Thank you. 